I recently had one where a plaintiff was involved in a subsequent incident about 12 months later, involving the exact same injuries as the claim in my case. And the attorney had absolutely no knowledge of this. And we, we learned this information, again, by issuing subpoenas to all of the healthcare providers and just combing through those medical records and, you know, seeing that there was this other situation, exact same body parts injured. Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a special guest from the law firm of Wilson Elzer. Marianne Alexander joins us. Welcome to the program, Marianne. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. There is a caveat we add at the beginning of every show, and that is whatever you and I say is not intended to be legal advice. It is imperative that our listeners marshal their facts and go speak to a lawyer about their own individual situation so they can get appropriate legal advice. And furthermore, the opinions that either you or I express are not those of Howard County Community College, it's faculty, staff, or employees. And with that, let's have a little chat about things. You are one of the speakers at the impending Maryland State Bar Summit in Ocean City, Maryland in June. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm going to be talking about the discovery process. Now, we kind of delve into all of this stuff across the lifespan of the show, and I think our listeners sort of know what it is, but could you give a general description of what the discovery process is, and we'll drill down on your talk and various other things. Yeah, so the discovery process is really the meat of litigation. It's where you're going to really gather your facts and make your case and build your theme for trial. It's your opportunity to exchange written interrogatories, which are questions to your adversary in order to get some written answers on the record. It's your opportunity to take a deposition of fact witnesses and experts in order to develop the case, lock in testimony, figure out areas where maybe more investigation is required and set yourself up for trial. So does this take place in every case that you handle? Absolutely. You always go through the discovery process. Could you give a general description of the nature of the work that you do sort of day in and day out? And we'll probe that a little bit as well. Sure. Well, I am a partner at Wilson Elser. We are a large insurance defense firm with over 800 attorneys and 41 offices nationwide. And we handle a variety of litigation type matters. By insurance defense, I mean a lot of our work comes through the insurance carriers or directly from corporate clients who are self-insured. My practice is primarily around commercial litigation. I represent a lot of corporations and other entities, usually in contractual disputes and a variety of tort liability matters. So basically, you're representing defendants in lawsuits in different species of cases. That's right. So how did you come to be doing that? Well, I did not take the typical path right out of college into law school. When I came out of college, that was right when the tech bubble burst. So it was a very interesting time. 
And I was very fortunate to get my first job at the Washington Post Newsweek Interactive, which was a joint venture of the Washington Post newspaper to put news online. And this was a new concept at the time. And nobody knew how this type of business was going to be profitable and whether there was going to be an audience for it. But I worked in business news and I was there when Enron and WorldCom and all those big scandals unfolded. I was there when Martha Stewart went to jail for insider trading. And you got some juicy stuff to work with. Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting time to be in business news, but also to be working in online journalism. So did you have background in this from college or how on earth did you get that job? I did not. I had taken a lot of computer programming type classes and in the online media's infancy, that's where they really needed help was with people who were tech savvy. So kind of more computer science-y than journalism-y. Right. So you apply, I mean, that's about as cash a job as one could imagine, especially for that employment era with the tech bubble crashing. That's right. And it was really interesting at that time, too, because all of that led to the accounting industry changing and you had Sarbanes-Oxley. So the whole world, business world, sort of changed. And I decided to go to law school. And of course, that background, I think, gave me a lot of transferable skills, of course, with the writing, the copy editing, just being current on news events, I think was helpful in transitioning to law school and starting my legal career. So my recollection is the Newsweek Washington Post thing ultimately didn't work out greatly to either's benefit. Is that accurate? Oh, it's still around. I'm not sure how things are done these days. I'd imagine that a lot more of it is done by the Washington Post reporters themselves. And then the technology side maybe is more automated these days. Okay. So when you would report on Enron or the collapse of Arthur Anderson or any of these things, how would you get your information? I mean, were you out furtively running around with a notepad interviewing people like, you know, in Watergate days or, or how would you get everything? No, this is the really fun part. My job was to watch television. That is how we got our news. I would have CNBC turned on and that's where you get your breaking headlines. And we had access to the wires from the Associated Press and Reuters. Could you tell our audience what you mean when you say the wires? Because it seems like a quaint thing from bygone days. Yeah, so you essentially are watching these live updates coming from reporters who are out in the field all over the world. And they just send a sentence or two about what they're seeing and what they're reporting. And the two main feeds are from the Associated Press and Reuters, and it's continuously updating. And what we were doing you know, around 2000 in online journalism was kind of piecing together what you were hearing from reporters on television who were also getting their information from these live wires and, and sort of piecing that 
together and turning it into a story or a blurb to put online. So it's like pre-Twitter Twitter, kind of the Absolutely. wire service. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to put it. That's exactly yeah. what it was. And so you would see these tidbits and you would try and tie them together into a cogent story or, or what would you do with them in essence? That's right. You would put it together to give enough information that this breaking news event was happening while you waited for your colleagues at the Washington Post to go and put together a story that would run in the paper. And sometimes they would release those stories before the print newspaper came out. And so you would publish that online. Was this on WashingtonPost.com or Newsweek.com or, or where would one have hypothetically found something that you authored in that era? Yeah, at WashingtonPost.com. Okay. I mean, I constantly am looking at it, you know, to this day, it's just, it seems like such a long ago era, you know, it, it, a different world. Absolutely. Things have changed tremendously since then, even though it hasn't been that long, we've come such a long way. So it does seem like it's a skill set once acquired would be very useful in the context of lawsuits, kind of reading the tea leaves or looking at bits of information and starting to get an outline of the larger picture of the case. Is that your experience? I think that's right. One of the things that I love about my job and what I do is I feel that we're putting together a puzzle. We're, we're problem solving. So what you're doing is you're going out there and you're collecting information. Um, you're collecting facts, you're talking to people, and then you're piecing it together. You know, you're applying the law, layering the law within that as well, but it's really like putting together a puzzle. So this discovery process of which we speak is this written informational exchange for the most part initially, interrogatories, requests for production of documents, in effect, questions about things. Is it your experience that lawyers on the other side are completely and fully and accurately responsive to your questions? No, and there are battles to be fought there often, particularly with written discovery that's exchanged. And there are lots of tools that attorneys can use to help facilitate that. There are motions you can file. And of course, there's a good faith process that you need to go through with your adversary to try and resolve any discovery disputes that you have. But oftentimes these things resolve and you end up going through a deposition where process, which is an oral question and answer session that's recorded in front of a reporter. That's right. And that's where you really can get into information that you're interested in or need to develop your case. I used to run around the state of Maryland with various judges and other lawyers talking about effective use of discovery, which is essentially what you're talking about here. And I found that the judges would often say, you know, you don't want to get to the edge of the trial and not have these things resolved. You can bring it to our attention. And my experience is, and a lot of people who've worked for me are now circuit court judges and some appellate judges. They don't really want to have to deal with these things on a day-to-day -day basis. And what I found is what I was professing in going to, you know, Washington County to give a talk at the Bar Association or something was something that I kind of knew in my heart of hearts, the judge's gave lip service to, but I didn't really feel like they wanted to see my 
motions to compel answers to interrogatories because I what I do, I'm a tort lawyer, basically. I do other things too, but I find that for the most part, the defense lawyers in my tort cases object to every single question I ask. Many of the questions I ask are taken verbatim from the Maryland rules where the Court of Appeals has put together a set of questions that they think are sort of the baseline. And I'm just, I'm always astonished. And I have a friendly, just my basic personality. I'm not combative. So I call them up and I go, you know, the Court of Appeals says these seven are perfectly appropriate. You've objected to them all. I want you to withdraw your objections. And they're usually too busy or, you know what I mean? And I just wondered if you have any suggestions. I've been doing this 41 years and I, in serious cases, I write a comprehensive multi-page letter laying out all the failings of people's responses. But for most day-to-day cases, I've reached the point where I just go, okay, another crummy set of answers to interrogatories that are not of any utility. Do you have any suggestions? And I didn't mean to be so long-winded, but I'm looking forward to attending your show at the summit because I really do value input from other lawyers who may have had a better experience than my own in that regard. Yeah. With regard to written exchange of information, I think the key is really to make sure that you're getting the documents that you need because that's what's going to drive your deposition. You're going to use those documents as exhibits. You're going to end up using those documents as exhibits at trial. And so you really want to make sure that you're getting all of that information. I think the best thing to do is to have those conversations with your adversary. I think a lot of times you do get these form objections in response to your form questions. But I do think that when we talk to one another, there are compromises that can be made to get the information that you need because attorneys know that ultimately that information is gonna come out in a deposition or you're gonna file a motion and it's going to be a really tough position for them to defend. But I think you need to have those conversations to let your adversary know that you're serious about pursuing that information, that they can't hide behind these improper objections. And I always find that if you don't get that information initially through the written exchange, you're going to get it in a deposition. So I guess it sounds like your experience is that interrogatories have limited value, these written questions, that the requests for production of documents, asking for documents, is often more valuable. Do you find there is a frequency in which your opponents withhold documents that are relevant or germane to the case that you're you're tussling over? Yeah, I don't know about that necessarily. I mean, one of the things that I'll be speaking about at the MSBA Legal Summit is about the corporate representative deposition. And that's where, you know, we're really going to dig into the responsibility of a corporate rep to gather all of the information and documents that are needed. And I think sometimes in those situations, because at least from a corporate defendant standpoint, there's a larger array of documents that you may be requested to produce. I think sometimes, you know, all of that information is difficult to capture, but from a plaintiff's side, you know, depending on the type of case, I think that 
you usually have a more limited scope of the type of documents that you're looking for. You also, I mean, you have at your disposal the ability to subpoena those documents independently. So particularly in personal injury cases where you're dealing with physical injuries, you don't just want to rely on the documents that the plaintiff is giving you with respect to medical treatment. You want to subpoena each of those healthcare providers yourself to make sure that you have the full medical history and that you're aware of all of the medical treatment that was provided. Do you find that sometimes you weren't? Of course. Yeah. You'd be surprised at the kinds of things that you uncover when you're diligent. And, you know, I don't know that that is always intentional. You know, there's the chance that there are documents that were inadvertently not disclosed. But I think that if you go and use all of the tools available to you, you're going to find that information. We find, you know, I'm basically a plaintiff's lawyer. And and so I find that some doctor's practices are wonderfully cooperative and are set up to provide you the information associated with your client's injury. And some of them are just completely random. And I always execute authorizations for my opponents to go get my client's records with the exception in some instances of mental health records if there isn't a mental health claim associated with it. But I'm like, the records come and then there's something that I haven't seen before. I know I've requested it and it just makes, it kind of makes us look bad sometimes because, you know, I just feel like every case has its particular realities and facts. And if my client's been in five prior accidents or had a surgery previously, that's part of my evaluation of the case. And it's just an an unfortunate state of affairs when you as the person representing the injured party doesn't have that information at your disposal. And sometimes it's because the person hasn't been entirely forthcoming, but I, I generally speaking, don't think that's the case. Well, that's just it. I mean, that's what I see more often. If there is information that hasn't been produced, it's typically because the plaintiff hasn't shared that information with their attorney. I recently had one where a plaintiff was involved in a subsequent incident about 12 months later involving the exact same injuries as the claim in my case. And the attorney had absolutely no knowledge of this. And we we learned this information, again, by issuing subpoenas to all of the healthcare providers and just combing through those medical records and, you know, seeing that there was this other situation, exact same body parts injured. So one of the things in our discourse before this that you mentioned was something about how to deal with something called reptile. And I know reptile has come up on this show, I think in its early days, but could you give our audience an idea of what we're talking about, what reptile means and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. The reptile brain is the primitive part of the brain. And we as human beings essentially have the same wiring as a lizard. So when your survival is at stake, your body temperature changes, your hormones release, your body regulation changes, and you begin experiencing a full range of emotions like fear and anxiety. And that kind of emotional state can activate the reptile brain. It's a stress response. And you see in litigation nowadays, more and more savvy plaintiff's attorneys are exploiting this part of the 
jury's brain and using it to manipulate the jury and to create this type of visceral response in order to drive up the amount of damages that they're able to recover at trial. And that's the other component to this is that you're seeing more and more of what's called nuclear verdicts, these verdicts that are completely disproportionate to the amount of damages in the case. And part of that is attributed to the exploitation of the reptile brain. Another part of that, though, is what's called social inflation. And so social inflation is basically the rising litigation costs that insurers are paying out because of societal views on who should bear the risk or cost of a loss. And that trend has become more prevalent since the 2008 financial crisis when you know, you're seeing more of this anti-corporate sentiment. There's attitudes these days about you know, wealth distribution and that factors into the social inflation. There's another thing we're seeing more and more these days and that's litigation funding. You're seeing these outside investors coming in and funding a plaintiff's case. And that's really changing litigation. You know, normally in the past, when you've had an individual plaintiff versus a corporate defendant, it's sort of this David versus Goliath scenario, right? But now with litigation funding, you have plaintiffs who can really outspend or keep up with the spending of a corporation and making their litigation case. And the other thing I think that's really influencing these nuclear verdicts and this concept of social inflation and perhaps influencing or making it easier to influence the reptile brain is the normalization of nuclear verdicts. And I think what's feeding into that is our exposure to social media. I think the more and the more that we're exposed to, you know, the wealth and the excess that you see these social influencers flaunting. I think the, the more and more we're devaluing the worth of a dollar. So, you know, anything less than a million dollar verdict just doesn't seem like that much money anymore to some people, even though you could have a $200,000 award. And that's real meaningful money to most people. So you're seeing all of these changes and it's going to be really interesting to see how COVID changes these trends, if at all, because one of the thoughts is that with the backlog in court proceedings that COVID has caused, the thought is, well, maybe plaintiffs might not want to wait a year or two to get to trial, maybe they want to try to settle the case today, and maybe they want to really compromise and make a concerted effort to compromise the claim today and just get it resolved. And, you know, the courts are back to normal operations right now, but it, it's just too soon to tell maybe. how these trends are going to play out. So how do you Given the totality of you, what you describe, how do you, and I don't know if the word combat is quite the, but how do you equalize or normalize the posture of the defendants in the face of reptile and nuclear verdicts and social inflation and that sort of thing? Well, there are lots of tools at your disposal. 
you know, one of the things that I think corporations should be doing is, you know, don't wait until the claim or the litigation arises. Make sure that you have your internal procedures and protocols in place now. And the key component of that is going to be to make sure that your record keeping, that your record keeping is in order. You want to make sure that, you know, you're really managing those documents so that you can ensure compliance with your own internal procedures and protocols. And then if you end up in a situation where there is a claim and you are in litigation, you want to make sure that your attorney is addressing these issues before it plays out before a jury. So you want to use what we call motions and lemonade. These are pretrial motions where you can limit the issues that end up in front of the jury. And there are lots of ways to anticipated reptile tactics using those motions. So how frequently do you file such things? Well, there's a court order, a scheduling order, usually that delineates the deadlines. And so you want to make sure that you comply with those deadlines, but you also want to be aware of these tactics Even before you get to that point, though, you want to make sure that you are, if you're producing a witness for a deposition, you want to make sure that you have prepped your witness to address and confront those kinds of questions because the reptile tactic really starts early on. And here's how it plays out. Basically, you've got the plaintiff's attorney is trying to activate the juror's survival mode instincts. And so what they want to do is they want to portray the defendant's conduct as a threat to the safety, to the general public. And they want to make the jury feel as though the award is a future deterrent that's necessary to protect the community at large. So the jurors will begin to view themselves as the defenders of the community safety, and they feel they must punish that defendant who violates the rules. So what a plaintiff's attorney is trying to do is they're trying to present the defendant's witness with a series of general safety or danger rule questions. Rules of the road, as it were. Right. And get agreement on these general safety rules. And the witness is instinctively going to want to agree with these safety rules because it supports their highly reinforced belief that safety is always paramount and that danger should always be avoided. But in reality, you know, if you think about it, safety is only one of many priorities. And so you want to make sure that your witness is prepped not to commit to these absolutes you want to take into the variety of factors that are into play because the danger with committing yourself to these safety rules is that eventually the plaintiff's counsel is going to lead you down this road to the point where you're then entrenched and boxed in and you have no choice but to continue agreeing with the questions. Otherwise, you appear like you're a hypocrite, right? 
So you want your witness to really listen to the question and be prepared to respond in a way that accounts for the circumstances. And you want your witness to account for the exercise of judgment in whatever action or conduct was taken. Because what the plaintiff's attorney is trying to do is to equate the safety rule with the standard of care. And that's not necessarily the same thing. It sounds like a tricky tricky posture to be in. Oh, absolutely. You know, the problem is that, so in most contexts, the legal standard is going to be based on what a reasonable person in that situation would do. Sure. It's not necessarily whether or not that person violated a known safety rule, but what would a reasonable person do under those circumstances? So let me give you an example of that. So if a man is driving his pregnant wife to the hospital because she's going to have a baby and he stops at the red light, but he sees there's no traffic coming in any direction, maybe it's reasonable for him to run that red light because it's an emergency situation. Sure. So in that instance, it would completely make sense to violate that traffic rule. You know, the plaintiff's attorney wants to take away the ambiguity and the reasonableness standard and make it an absolute rule. And you want your witness to be prepared to address that and to account for the exercise of judgment and to account for the circumstances. I regret to say we have run out of time, but it sounds like we need to have Marianne Alexander on again to discourse into this further. Maybe we'll bring a reptilian lawyer from the other side in and have you two both talk about it. Thank you very much, Marianne. Thank you so much. I'll see you in June in Ocean City. That's right. And I think you're 145 to 245 on Thursday, June the 2nd. Does that sound about right? That's right. Uh, I'll track you down. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.